If you have your Bible, I would uh, encourage you to take it and turn to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are going to be looking at chapter 27, verses 11 and following. Uh, as we look at uh, the ironies of the cross, uh, we covered the first irony uh, last uh, Sunday for Palm Sunday, and we add uh, the second irony from the uh, arrest narrative of, of Jesus. And we cover that the, uh, this evening, and we will cover uh, an additional two more uh, next uh, Passion Week. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, if you'd like to turn there. Good Friday. When you think about the name, I mean, if you're honest, uh, what's good about it? I mean, if you're not a Christian, that really seems like a kind of an interesting name when you think about what happened on that day. Um, think about the crucifixion of Christ, what Christ went through, the, the, the beating by the Romans, the flogging, the mocking, the crown of thorns, all that he went through, and you call it Good Friday. Well, it's good. It's very good. Because uh, the Lord, out of his goodness, sent his son to be our savior. And he had to go to that cross. And the son, willfully and obediently, followed the father's plan. Uh, like Isaac did of old, uh, when Abraham led him to a point of sacrifice. Jesus, in a greater way, actually laid his life down. And because he did that, he did the greatest thing. He did the good thing. Because he was able then to be put in a position to redeem sinful man. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. Paul says that we who were not sinners, we, we, we were sinners, were not reconciled to God, but it was that work of Jesus dying for us and then rising again allows us to be saved. Uh, that's why it's called Good Friday. Because you have the holy dying for the unholy. You have a, a friend of friends dying, according to Paul, for his enemies. There's goodness all about that. Divine goodness. Ironic is what it is. That sinners would have the ultimate uh, holy one dying for them. You have to stop and ask yourself, <clears throat> what is the purpose of all the ironies that we see in the, the narratives of the arrest and the trial of Jesus? Uh, there's many. Uh, and those particular ironies are designed, as we uh, talked about in our study uh, on um, uh, uh, Palm Sunday, those ironies are designed to spiritually educate people and to motivate people, especially non-Christians, uh, to consider their need to turn to the Messiah and to be saved. That's the main motif of those ironies. <clears throat> we covered uh, one irony uh, last week in verses 1 to 10, where we uh, understood from the text that they who judge unjustly will be judged justly. Uh, those who judged unjustly were the, the scribes and the Pharisees who uh, were arrogant and prideful and opposed to Christ and wanted everything in their power to rid the earth of him so they could enjoy their power over people uh, and their constant flow of, of money to their coffers. See, Christ was a, a threat to them, and they, they rigged an entire trial because they didn't have the power to put him to death. Uh, they stacked the deck against him, as it were, uh, to get him executed. They were the political leaders, the religious leaders of the day, and they judged him unjustly. That's ironic because he's the ultimate judge, and they will face him as the judge one day, according to Matthew 25. 
you have to ask yourself before we leave that point, just by way of review, am I really guilty of judging Christ unjustly? Because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees did, and that's what non-believers do all of the time. They unjustly judge him so they don't have to deal with him. But Jesus says, judge me justly. Listen to my message. Listen to my gospel. The second thing that we want to look at, uh, just one motif uh, that shows us another irony is uh, found starting in verse 11 where we encounter uh, a politician named Pilate. Here we are going to see uh, from the, the life of uh, Pilate as he encounters Jesus, the, the ironic thing is this, that they who seek innocence by external personal works really need the divine internal work. I'll say that again. They who seek innocence by external personal works really need the divine internal work. Uh, the, the whole story drips with that particular ironic statement. See, the Jews uh, did not have, as I said, the power to execute a man, so they had to rely upon Rome. And at this point in time, uh, Pontius Pilate was their man. Uh, he was the sixth Roman procurator to serve in Judea. Uh, he was the man of the hour to get Jesus executed. Uh, ushering Jesus before uh, a pilot at the Antonia Fortress. And I was just uh, in the, the grounds of the Antonia Fortress about a month and a half ago, two months ago. Um, it was located on the northwestern uh, wall of the Temple Mount. Basically built there so that the, uh, the Romans could control uh, what was going on on the Temple Mount. And they brought Jesus there for trial. They brought three charges against him. Dr. Luke, uh, who was a, a believer, uh, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, who was also a medical doctor, very learned man, uh, reminds us of the three charges brought against Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 2 says, And they began to accuse him, saying, charge number one, We found this man misleading our nation, number two, and forgetting to pay taxes to Caesar, tax evasion, and three, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Three charges. What they did is in trying to subvert Christ and to silence Christ, they did what uh, evil people typically do who want to stay in power and depose somebody who is in their way speaking truth. They threw out three charges hoping that one of them would stick. Well, Pilate being a, the quintessential uh, professional politician, his ears perked when he heard the, the last statement. He's a king? Well, Caesar's king in Pilate's mind. It says in verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, that is Pilate, and the governor questioned him, saying, quote, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Speaking of Jesus, verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed because you would think if the man, you know, was, was innocent, he would be speaking up for himself. But Jesus realized that there was no way he was going to outreason uh, the chief priest who had already made up their minds uh, that they wanted to get rid of him on false charges. He was done uh, presenting truth to them. But you will notice uh, when uh, Pilate asks him who he is, he states very clearly who he is. He basically says in our vernacular, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Yes, I am the Messiah. 
And it's true because his pedigree, according to Matthew chapter 1, was Davidic. He came from the Davidic line. Uh, His miraculous works demonstrated that he was, in fact, the Messiah, uh, as prophesied the Messiah would do. He would would do all the things that he did in his miraculous deeds. Uh, So in that exchange, uh, while he's presenting himself to Pilate as the Messiah, the Jews are in the background uh, mocking him and accusing him constantly. Uh, according to the book of John, uh, there was more said between Jesus and Pilate than what uh, Matthew records. Chapter 18 of the book of John, here's more of the conversation that transpired between the two men. It says in verse uh, 34 of John chapter 18, Jesus answered and said to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Translated, I mean, who put you up to this kind of question? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Uh, Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. Uh, What have you done? Jesus answered, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting uh, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered and said, will you say that I am a king? And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate was getting uncomfortable at that point, and he being the ultimate relativist, where truth was concerned, evaded Jesus by asking a question, what is truth? What is truth? This uh, whole interchange between uh, Pilate and Jesus Uh, within this context, uh, again, drips with irony designed to wake up the spiritual sleeper. Pilate, um, Jesus uh, asked him the question, is this your question about who I am or did someone put you up to this? Because it's ironic because he who is the leader and has Jesus under trial, uh, that should have been his question, but he was really pressured to ask that question. The second point of irony is the the one who should be doing all of the questioning, Pilate, is being questioned by Jesus. So you have to kind of uh, ask with a a slight uh, amusing smile on your face, who's the guilty person here? Well, it wasn't Jesus. It was Pilate. Jesus was probing and causing Pilate to have to look at himself. Another point of irony, uh, Pilate speaks about an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. Jesus is on a whole other plane altogether. He's speaking, ironically, about a, a heavenly kingdom with a, with a heavenly eternal king. Pilate, two ships passing in the night on that one. He never even got the point. Lastly, Jesus, uh, who was the essence of spiritual truth, of all truth, uh, is speaking to a man uh, who believes truth is relative. Imagine that. A relativist where truth is concerned, speaking to the essence of truth, Jesus. Talk about irony. What's Pilate say? What is truth? You Jews have your truth. We Romans have our truth about religion. You know, you have some version of truth about who you think you are. It's all relative. Jesus' point is, it's not relative. Because Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way I am the truth. He's the life. He's the essence of all of those things. You know, after Pilate's initial ex- exchange and summary conclusion uh, that Jesus was innocent of all pr- proposed charges, uh, the procurator, according to Luke, 
sent Jesus to Herod Antipas. You know, this is the old proverbial uh, kicking the can down the road thing, which we all understand very well here in the D.C. environment. If you don't want to deal with the problem, you just kick it down the road and let somebody else deal with it. And Pilate was thinking to himself, this man is completely innocent. His kingdom is from another dimension in his mind. Uh, he's no threat to Rome. I'll just send him to Herod Antipas, who happens to be in town. According to Luke 23, verse 6. It was a shrewd move to send Jesus over to Herod Antipas. You know, Herod Antipas was the one who uh, killed John the Baptist. Jesus uh, was taken over there. You can study that context on your own. Uh, Herod Antipas uh, and his men uh, mocked Jesus to his face. Um, it's an amazing uh, passage if you want to study it. But our focus is more on Matthew 27. I just want to make notation that Jesus went uh, to the, the, the palace of Herod Antipas, which was, was not far from the Antonia Fortress. I was just there on my last trip in February to, to Israel. Uh, short walk, maybe 15, 20 minute walk. But as Jesus was uh, before Herod Antipas, this wicked man, uh, two, two other ironic things emerge. That, that he who was unholy... The unholy king stood before the one who was the holy king. Imagine the irony. And he didn't even know it. The second thing is, he who openly mocked the true king, according to Psalm 37 verses 12 to 15, uh, one day the true king will mock that king. Ironic. Why does Matthew weave all those ironies in there? Well, he wants you to pay attention to them because as I said last week, ironies are designed to grab you by the shoulders and shake you and wake you up and make you consider what is being said. Once Jesus returned from the trial before Herod and you can put scare quotes around trial because it wasn't really a trial with Herod Antipas. Uh, it was really a, a mockery, a joke. Uh, Pilate was then faced with an issue. Uh, what was he going to do to get Jesus, this innocent man, off the hook uh, so he, he didn't have to send him to the cross? Well, we read in verse 15 uh, what his plan was of Matthew 27. It says, now the feast of the governor was accustomed uh, to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who's called the Christ, or the Messiah. For he knew that because of the envy they had handed him over, he knew he was innocent. He knew their motives were wrong. Verse 19 says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat in the Antonia Fortress, his wife uh, sent him a message saying, and we don't know how the message got there. They didn't have a cell phone, so it didn't come by text. But she, she smuggled a note to her husband and said this, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Even Pilate's own wife knows Jesus is innocent. Calls him a righteous man. At Passover, uh, Roman tradition uh, was to release one prisoner uh, to the people. It's probably meant to pacify the people. One touch of mercy from Rome. Uh, I'm sure this particular situation, uh, Pilate, as we see from the text, uh, 
uh, he, he purposefully chose Barabbas, one of the meanest, most vile robbers, murderers, insurrectionists, according to the gospel accounts, that they could find. He picks the most vile criminal and presents him as the one who could be released over Jesus, thinking in his mind, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, that there's no way that people are going to choose Barabbas over Jesus, and thereby they'll release Jesus, and then Pilate would be free, conscience-wise, for not killing an innocent man. But things did not turn out like he had planned. Verse 20 says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus, the innocent man, to death. But the governor, Pilate, said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, well then, what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And they said, crucify him. And he said, well, why? I mean, what evil has he done? What did the people do? Well, they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. This is ironic. Uh, Barabbas, his name, Barabbas, is ironic. Barabbas is from the Hebrew bar Abbas, which means son of the father. Bar Abbas. Think of that. Barabbas, the criminal, the vile, evil insurrectionist, the murderer, is called son of the father. He's going to be exchanged. He's going to be given his freedom. And the true son of the father, Jesus, will die in his place for his sin. Amazing, isn't it? His name is also uh, translated by some people, uh, not son of the father, Barabbas, but Bar-Rabban, which means son of the rabbi. And that is ironic even in and of itself. Because if he was called son of the rabbi, if his, his father happened to have been a rabbi, well, he had strayed far from the belief system of the Torah, had he not? And who indeed was the greatest son of the rabbi other than Jesus? Ironic. You know, this was not the first time that, uh, that old Herod or that old uh, pilot uh, had uh, dealings with Jews that formed mobs around uh, his uh, judgment seat. Um, if you happen to dig into Josephus, the Jewish historian from back in the day, um, you will find that he had had uh, two major incursions with the Jews uh, prior to his uh, arrest of Jesus and, and mob uh, uh, chanting with Jesus. He, he, this had happened before. On two occasions, and it's most instructive to, to dig into them. Uh, on one occasion, Pilate arrogantly and thoughtlessly sought to overthrow uh, the Jewish laws of the Torah, uh, which forbid images to be in the city, uh, by ordering his armed troops to bring statues and images of Caesar into the city, but he did it at night, because he knew if he did it in the daytime, there would be a mass riot. So he snuck in images of Caesar, uh, who was a, a deity in their uh, polytheistic system, uh, into Jerusalem, knowing that this was going to cause all kinds of problems. Well, how did the Jews respond? Well, I have to read Josephus to explain to you what happened uh, when the Jews found out about this, what Pilate had done. It says in uh, Josephus' uh, book, The War of the Jews in Antiquities, 
It says, but now Pilate, the procurator of Judea, removed the army from Caesarea to Jerusalem uh, to take their winter quarters there in order to abolish the Jewish laws. So he introduced Caesar's effigies, which were upon the ensigns, and he brought them into the city, whereas our law forbids us the very making of an image. It says, on which account the former procurators were wont to make their entry into the city with such ensigns as had not uh, those ornaments. Pilate was the first who brought these images to Jerusalem, and he set them up there, which was done without the knowledge of the people, uh, because it was done in the nighttime. Joseph goes on to say, but as soon as they knew it, they came in multitudes to Caesarea on the coast. I was just there just two months ago. Beautiful place. That's where the Herod had his uh, home on the beach. That's where the the theater was, uh, the Hippodrome, the racetrack, beautiful place. He, uh, they came to the, with multitudes to Caesarea and they interceded with Pilate many days that he would remove the images. So here the Jews are at his home base in Caesarea chanting for, for justice. And when he would not grant their request because uh, it would tend to the injury of Caesar, while they yet persevered in their request, on the sixth day, he ordered his soldiers to have their weapons privately. While he came and he sat upon the judgment seat, which seat was also prepared in the open place of the city, that it concealed the army uh, that lay ready to oppress them, the Jews, as they came to demonstrate and protest. When the Jews petitioned him again, he gave a signal to the soldiers to encompass the, them about and threatened that their punishment should be no less than immediate death for demonstrating. What did the Jews do? They threw themselves on the ground, pulled their tunics down and showed their necks and said, you can kill us, but we will not recant. What we want from you is to remove the images. You can imagine what happened. On that particular day, after uh, the Jews uh, in, uh, gathered up against Pilate, uh, he blinked. He backed down. He gave in to them. He removed the false images. What happened on that day? Well, Pilate learned how committed the Jews were to the Torah. The Jews learned that they could riot and yell and chant over that which they were passionate about, and they could pressure this politician to do what they wanted. Second time that Pilate uh, had a problem with the Jews and they with him. Uh, he actually wanted to uh, build an aqueduct to bring water to the city. And so what did he do? Josephus tells us that he brought water to the city, but the way that he did it was he went to the holy temple and he took the money out of the temple to fund his uh, aqueduct project. How'd that go over? Well, this time when the Jews rioted because of his uh, sacrilegious activity, uh, he planted his soldiers among them, uh, not dressed as soldiers, and they summarily went around and began to kill Jews who would dare speak against Pilate. So what do we have? We have a, a leader who's pressured to change his mind about false images, and then on the other side uh, will not give in over stealing from the temple and would kill the Jews. So with that murderous uh, activity just occurring, we have then Jesus brought before Jesus, Jesus brought before Pilate, and Pilate knows in the back of his mind that he has just killed hundreds of innocent Jews. He does not want a riot on his hand for Passover. So he is primed to politically cave, is my point. This is ironic. Think about it. 
He who caved to pressure regarding his false god, Caesar, is going to cave to pressure regarding the true God, Christ. That was him. He absolutely had no backbone. Another thing to think about. The Jews who wanted to die for the fact that they didn't want false images portrayed uh, in their land and in their city, they, don't, they will die for the, the fact they don't want false images there, are willing to kill the true God who's standing among them. It's totally ironic. And then they who would die for the desecration of the temple, being robbed by Pilate, the Jews would die for that. They're going to kill the temple, Jesus. Amazing. How did, uh, how did uh, Pilate respond to the pressure this time? This would be like the third episode, Pilate versus the Jews. What's going to happen? Well, he caves to the peer pressure. Verse 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, quote, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. See, this is highly ironic again. He's going to go over and wash his hands as long as he can to wash away the sin that he knows is going to be associated with killing an innocent man. And he thinks that's going to cleanse him. See, what he really needed, which I said at the introduction, what he really needed was not an external physical work. He needed the internal spiritual work of the blood of Jesus washing his sin clean. That's what he really needed. That's what all sinners need. I mean, Pilate is the quintessential sinner who thinks he can deal with his sin in his own way and that's going to be good with God, not realizing that the only way to deal with sin is to come before the cross of Christ and have that, that blood washing over your soul by faith. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way. But Christ being, uh, becoming our high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of the goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Then he writes, For if the blood of the bulls and the goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, that's in the Old Testament period, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, that's, that's a word addressed directly to Pilate. Pilate, how could you ever think that washing your hands in a basin is going to clear your entire soul of the stain of sin? That, that virus of sin, it's not going to work. What you need is for your life to be purged by the blood of Christ, who's going to die on the cross for you. That's the only thing that can purge the conscience and the soul clean. You have to ask yourself, am I Pilate? Am I Pilate? Am I trusting in the, the wrong way to, to get right with God or to feel good about myself? See, the only way to have a soul where your soul is as white as snow before God is to know Christ who can wash that sin away. There's an old hymn. I uh, closed our service the other day with one. I recount another one to you the old hymn goes like this have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you fully trusting in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you washed in the blood in the soul cleansing blood of the lamb are your garments spotless are they white as snow are you washed in the blood of the lamb it is the ultimate question 
the ultimate question. When I wasn't a Christian and would sit in church and listen to that old, that old song uh, sung uh, by the church, I might have been a young man, but I was listening because those questions were directed to me because we're all pilot. I knew I wasn't washed. Well, how do you get washed? You come to Christ and say, God, thank you for dying for me. Wash my soul clean. And he will. I leave you with that song uh, to, to think about as we close tonight. God bless you. Uh, and I hope this, uh, this old hymn ministers to your soul as we play it. Amen.